Right, so I'm, I'm really pleased and honored to, to be here with you today. Um, as a professor of systematic theology, um, I do get asked quite often to preach on Trinity Sunday uh, and Epiphany Sunday when um, most clergy go on holiday. Um, so this is, this is right up my street and I'm ready to do it. I have to apologize though that my sermon, Glenn said that he wanted me to preach for 30 to 40 minutes. And after uh, 13 years in the UK, you don't get to preach for that long normally. Uh, in fact, I, I would get in big trouble if I did that. In fact, the first sermon I ever preached in Scotland, I timed it perfectly to be 13 minutes. And the only comment I got after the sermon was from an old deary in our church who said, that was a great sermon, Justin. So a wee bit long. Uh, <laughs> So give me a couple of years living here in Canada and I will hopefully bloat my sermons to larger and larger lengths. Um, but here you're gonna get something in the middle. So it's not quite as long as 30 minutes. So I apologize for that, but uh, let's pray. Lord, we believe, help thou our unbelief. Amen. So this afternoon, I'd like to speak to you about the Holy Trinity. Now, as someone who teaches systematic theology for a living, I think the Trinity is just about the most fascinating topic anyone could talk about. However, it's come to my attention that not everyone is as interested in debating the finer points of this doctrine as I am, which is quite sad. And I suspect that many of you might even consider the doctrine of the Trinity something of an overly confusing set of concepts that at best should probably be left to the professionals and at worst is kind of an embarrassing thing to say that you believe out in the wild world. And to tell you the truth, I used to think that way myself. I grew up in a Christian context but I didn't really know what the Trinity was. I didn't know where it came from. I didn't really know what it was good for. All I knew that was that if I denied the doctrine of the Trinity, that would make me liberal, which in my context was a bad thing. So if you asked me if I believed in the doctrine of the Trinity, I would say, sure. But really, I only said that because I thought that's what I was supposed to say. For me, the actual doctrine of the Trinity seemed like nothing more than just almost like a bizarre math problem. And maybe it seems that way to you too. But as I got older, and particularly as I started to learn a little bit more about church history, I found myself confronted with a nagging question. If the Trinity is such a bizarre, esoteric idea, why on earth did the church spend so much time fighting for it? Why, for example, did the largest schism that ever happened in the church, the split between the Eastern and the Western churches in the 11th century, why did that have to do not just with the Trinity, so it's not like one side was denying the Trinity and the other side was affirming it. But that split happened because of an incredibly minute aspect of Trinitarian doctrine. 
which is really fascinating, but I won't go into that right now. Why have our Christian mothers and fathers so consistently considered the Trinity to be something that was worth fighting for? And so my aim this afternoon is to commend to you something of the answer that I've arrived at to some of these questions. And I want to do this by not giving you a lecture on the finer points of the Trinity. For that, you have to um, pay some money to this August institution, Wycliffe College, and enroll in my classes. I don't want to do that, but today I want to explain to you how this doctrine, this doctrine of the Trinity, relates to a very specific and singular point, and it is this. The Christian God is a what you see is what you get kind of God. The Christian God is a what you see is what you get kind of God. And to do this, I want to draw your attention to this afternoon's text from John 14. So if you have a Bible, you might want to have a finger in that passage in John chapter 14. Now, John 14, as you're turning to it, is part of what's called the farewell discourse. And it's basically kind of a pep talk that Jesus gives to his disciples to prepare them for his upcoming departure when Jesus would return to his father after the resurrection. Now, at this point in the story, the tension amongst the disciples was incredibly high. Remember, these people left everything to follow this man, to follow this young rabbi. And by follow, I don't mean sort of uh, subscribe to his teachings. I mean, literally leave their homes and follow him around wherever he went. Uh, sitting at his feet and learning from his teachings. So they had staked their lives, their livelihoods, on the belief that Jesus really was Israel's Messiah. And so they were prepared, so they thought, to spend the rest of their days following behind him as he went about establishing his kingdom. So that was the game plan, right? They quit their jobs. Now our job is to follow this dude around. And now, Jesus says he's leaving. For the time being, at least, it seems like they're going to have to go it alone. How do you be a disciple when you don't have a master? Right? If it says in your business card, disciple, right? the next question is, who are you a disciple of? And you can't say, well, he's not here, right? or no one. You need a master to be a disciple. So for Jesus to sort of say he's leaving meant that it was a really incredibly confusing and disheartening time for this group of people. And so Jesus aims to comfort his disciples. He says, I'm going to my father to prepare a place for you, but don't let your hearts be troubled, be troubled because soon I'll be back to get you to bring you to my father so that where I am, there you may be also. Right, so there are three moves here. Number one, Jesus has to go to his father. Number two, he will prepare a place for his disciples alongside his father. And three, he will return to retrieve his disciples and to bring them to the father to live alongside Jesus. So leave, prepare, return. Those aren't my three points, but 
there's three things so you have to point that out when you're preaching leaves prepares returns so again where is jesus going he's going to the father and who will take the disciples to the father jesus and so when thomas asks him how he can get to where jesus is going jesus basically just repeats himself he says i am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me now it's at this point that philip chimes in he says lord show us the father and we'll be satisfied in other words all of this leaving and returning and leaving again sounds a bit much jesus look lord jesus you don't have to go away that's what philip is saying you don't have to go away jesus judea is really nice this time of year <laughs> right just show us the father right here right now and we will settle for that now it's at this point that things get really interesting because what does jesus say does he say trust me philip i know judea is beautiful in the springtime but heaven heaven is just so awesome once you see it you're going to love it and you're going to forget all about this place does jesus say that no he does not what he says is this philip you've already seen the father because whoever has seen me has seen the father verse 9. okay what is jesus talking about here now at this point things could get very theologically complicated and I'm, I'm holding myself back because everything inside of me wants to get theologically complicated but i'm not going to do that look at the text jesus hints at a much simpler answer look at what he says in verse 10. he says the words that i say to you I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. I think what Jesus is saying here is this. Look, Philip, I came here to do the Father's will. Everything I've ever said and done, I've said and done only because the Father willed it. In fact, I am so attuned to the Father's will, says Jesus, that I'm basically a perfect reflection of the Father. I think that's what Paul was getting at when he writes in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Or the writer to the Hebrews, when he calls Jesus the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. It's like this. If you want to look at the Father, you look at the mirror in which the Father's face is reflected. And strangely enough, that mirror just is Jesus of Nazareth. And even more strangely, that mirror just is this incredibly average-looking Jewish man standing directly before Philip. Now here's the fascinating bit. Even as Jesus says things like, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, verse 10. And in another place, I and the Father are one, 
John 10, verse 30. It's evident from the text that Jesus is not exactly the same as his father. There seems to be an order, some kind of relation between the two. The father, for example, commands and the son obeys. The father sends and the son goes. They are perfectly matched. But this is only because the son corresponds to the father and not vice versa. But there's more. Jesus says that during this in-between time, the time after Jesus' ascension, but before his return, the disciples can expect another emissary from the Father, the advocate, the comforter, the spirit of truth, as Jesus says in verses 16 and 17. This spirit, Jesus says a bit further down in the text, will, quote, teach you everything and remind you of all that I've said to you, verse 26. So just like Jesus' words and deeds perfectly matched the Father, so the words and deeds of the Spirit will perfectly match the Son. Jesus is saying that even though he's departing, he's still going to be with the disciples, but now in a new kind of way, not in the flesh, but by this Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus says, curiously, when he's describing the coming of the Spirit in verse 18, I am coming to you. Again, just like the Father, the Spirit is different from the Son, but the Spirit so perfectly mirrors the Son that it's like the Son himself is present wherever the Spirit is present. Jesus is going, but he's also coming now in the Spirit. So there's something really strange going on here, right? There are three names that are given, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet these three are so closely aligned that they are reflecting each other perfectly. Right? If you have the Spirit, you also have the Son and the Father. If you have the Father, you also have the Son and the Spirit, and so on in every permutation you can think of. Nevertheless, they are also distinct enough that they don't sort of dissolve into one another. They are, if you like, indivisibly one and yet irreducibly three. So what do we do with a passage of scripture like this? Well, I think it's, it's that kind of question that led the church to develop the doctrine of the Trinity. I think with, what those church fathers were doing back in the fourth century was they were trying to find a way of reckoning with the Bible, with the biblical material in a way such that none of its strange and mysterious contours get sort of muted or explained away. Right? There's all these kind of irreducible, strange, incomprehensible mysteries, and you have to talk about it in such a way that you don't just sort of smooth out the problem. You have to sort of find a way to say it all. And that's what I think was going on. The Trinity 
is, is not, in my view, complicated Hellenistic philosophy. I think the Trinity is really just a way for the church to let the Bible speak. But I think the doctrine of the Trinity says something even a bit more than that. Because there's lots of ways of explaining this passage that don't end up with God being Trinitarian. For example, you could say that God chooses to appear as Father, Son, and Spirit at different times. So before Jesus was born, God was busy being the Father. And then after Christmas, he spent some time being the Son, and now he appears to us as the Holy Spirit. In other words, God takes on different roles at different times to get different jobs done, right? He puts on his sort of sun outfit when he needs to do sun things, and he puts on his spirit outfit when he wants to do spirit things, right? Or you could say, in another sense, that maybe there's just three kind of divine blokes up there in heaven working together like a kind of God committee with maybe the father acting as the chairman of the board. So on one hand, you have the sort of putting on different roles. On the other hand, you have the committee model, what I used to call in England the three blokes model of the Trinity. But there's a problem with both of those options because both of those options, those ways of explaining what's going on in the text, imply that God appears in certain ways to us when really, like really, really, he's actually quite different than God appears. In one case, he appears like he's Father, Son, and Spirit, but really he's just one God wearing different masks. In the other case, God appears like he's one God, but really he's just actually three different gods working together, right? Gods that really, really like each other, right? That are sort of really keen on each other's wills, but three different gods nonetheless. And in both of those models, we're left with this question, okay, well, who really is God? Does God ever actually show us what he's really like? Or does he have to sort of put on these sort of simplistic accounts of himself? Does God ever introduce himself as he really is? Well, the church's eureka moment concerning all of this came in the fourth century, I think, when Christians for the first time allowed themselves to entertain this mind-blowing idea. What if God really is the way he seems? What if when we say he's one God in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's actually the truth about him. What if God has been straight with us all along? And that, I think, is the real meaning of the doctrine of the Trinity. What the doctrine of the Trinity insists is that despite the fact that God's being is altogether too magnificent and glorious and mysterious and incomprehensible for us to ever fully understand, God still wants to reveal himself to us as he truly is. Right? He knows it's going to be weird for us to take in 
what he's really like, but he's still going to show us who he is. He's not going to dumb himself down. He's actually going to reveal his being to us. God is not like the Wizard of Oz. He's not just putting on a show to deceive us into thinking he's something that he's not. No, when God reveals God's self to us, he's the genuine article. He's the real deal, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. When God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is introducing himself to us. He is telling us his name. And at the end of the day, what that means really is that God is trustworthy. He really does want to have a relationship with us. He doesn't want to hide his true self from us. In other words, our God really, really is a what you see is what you get kind of God. Look, I know the doctrine of the Trinity is a, a difficult concept to grasp. But if you get anything from what I'm saying, get this. The Trinity, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, tries to capture this bold Christian evangelical claim that God wants us to know him. That's basically it. Jesus says in John 15, I do not call you servants any longer because the servant doesn't know what the master's doing, but I call you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from the Father. And when Jesus prays for his disciples, he says to his Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, we live in a society where we're used to people wearing masks, both literally and figuratively. We're used to people presenting themselves to us in one way while hiding who they are really on the inside. And it's not just other people, right? We do this too. We're all guilty of putting up a front of wearing a mask. I mean, I do this a lot. Why do I do this? Because letting people in to who you are is like a really vulnerable kind of thing. So right now, like at this moment, I really want you to see me as a cool theology guy with a salt and pepper beard who knows exactly what he's talking about. Like, I want you to think that, like, in your heart. I, want, I mean, I'm saying all this stuff about the Bible, but there's a part of me that's like, I want you to take away from this message, Justin's awesome, right? I don't want you to know about my fears and my insecurities. I don't want you to know about how I dance. I don't want you to know about my inconsistent parenting style. I don't want you to know about my temper, my judgmentalism, all of those hidden aspects that make me, me. There's only a couple people that get to see those things, those few unfortunate souls, people like my wife, for example, or maybe a couple of close friends. But for the most part, it feels like it's just kind of too dangerous to let people 
actually know who I am, to let everyone in on the secret of me. But here's this conflict that we have, because even though we are really hesitant to show people who we are, we really want other people to show us who they are. Why? Because at the end of the day, we want genuine relationships. We really want genuine relationships. We want to be real with people. We can just never tell if people are being real with us. And it's this circle of mistrust and fear that keeps us apart from one another. But the truth is we were made for more than that. We were made to be genuine with one another, just like Adam and Eve when they were naked in the garden. Imagine that. It's like the most terrifying thought in the world, right? Imagine just being naked right now. It's gross. But here's the good news. Though we plunged ourselves into this morass of fear and sin and broken relationships, God, the one who created us for more than that, breaks the cycle. Because our God is a God who holds nothing back from us. Our God is a God who gives us not just his favor and his blessings. Our God gives us his very self. And that means Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What you see is what you get. Though we turn our backs on him, he doesn't abandon us. He pursued us to the bitter end and showed us the greatest love of all, which is laying down his life for us, his friends. And when we say yes to the God who gives us his name, who holds nothing back, then we can finally know what it's like to be in a true and genuine relationship, to live as we were meant to live. Right? God makes the first move by introducing himself to us. And when that happens, when we say yes to that overture, that initial introduction that God makes to us, it's like the floodgates of reconciliation are opened up and we learn to relate to other people without fear and without mistrust. We learn to relate to the world in love. And brothers and sisters, that's what the Trinity is about. It's not a puzzle to be solved. It's a declaration of the gospel. It's good news. And for that reason, I, I look back in the halls of church history and I give thanks for these, these folks, these church fathers and mothers who fought for centuries to pass this belief down to us, to give us things like the Athanasian Creed. And so this afternoon, I want you to join me in praising the Lord Jesus for showing us, as he said he would, the way to the Father and the Spirit who unites us to Christ. Because with God, what you see is what you get. Thanks be to God for this, his indescribable gift. Amen.